Welcome everyone to the bonus episode, part two of The American Experiment, A Republic If You Can Keep It. A podcast about government, politics, and the U.S. Constitution. In this second part of our bonus episode, we are going to be covering the Supreme Court confirmation process. And probably more than any episode so far, this episode is going to really get into politics. Um, So... Dun, dun, dun. So we're just going to try to give an overview. I mean, this is, there is so much to talk about with this process, but our goal for this episode is if you as a listener don't know a lot about the Supreme Court confirmation process, like, you know, RBG died, President Trump is filling this seat, the Democrats are really upset about it, like, but you don't really know what all that means. This episode is designed to just give you an idea of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, like with most things on, in our podcast, our goal is really to be informative as much as possible. At least my goal, you know, Courtney tries to push back on my that My goal is a to lot. be divisive. Um, I'm just kidding. But my goal in this episode is just going to be to give a fair explanation of where both sides stand on the mm-hmm. issue. Um, I think you as the listener are... 100% capable of drawing your own conclusions. In fact, you may have your conclusions when you come to the episode already. Um, so I think there are a ton of people that are happy to do that and say, like, this is how you should feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my goal is just to, to try to give you the facts, to try to help you see it from both sides and then... You Make know, your own decision. Yeah. Um, although I know some of our listeners really like trying to figure out what I think based off what I say in this podcast, so... I think some of our listeners are going to be very happy to hear you maybe voice some of your opinions. Yeah, well... In this episode. All right, so... um, Well, because of our episodes on how the Senate works, how the President works, how the Judiciary works, Mm -hmm. um, our listeners should have a basic idea of what the confirmation process looks like. So... When there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. what the Constitution says is that the president gets to appoint someone, gets Mm -hmm. to nominate someone, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. So the president picks, the president has complete authority to pick whoever he or she wants. Um, Then the Senate gives advice and consent, which is pretty much what it sounds like. They say yes or no. And then if they say yes, that person goes to the Supreme Court. If they say no, then the president can pick someone else. Mm -hmm. That's about all the Constitution has to say about this process. Now, as you might suspect, it's a lot more complicated about that. Because when you come at an issue like this, the base layer is what does the Constitution say? Mm -hmm. But then... There aren't really in this instance, but there might be laws that bear on an issue. That's not really, Mm -hmm. you know, an issue here. Um, But there are lots of norms. Yeah. Right? Because when we look at what's happening, we look at at precedent. How Mm -hmm. have people been doing it since we became a nation? Um, And so that will play an important role in this episode because there's a lot of appeal to, you know, the normal way of doing things. How do Mm -hmm. people customarily do this process? Right. uh, That informs a lot of the arguments. Um, So why are, you know, why are we at this moment? So as we talked about in the previous episode, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, died. It's been two weeks, just about two weeks. Um, And 
there are a couple reasons. Well, we'll talk more about about why it's a big deal. But her death created a vacancy on the Supreme Court. So right. the Supreme Court, um, by law, not by the Constitution, is set at at nine justices. Mm-hmm. And so there's a vacancy, and so the president um, can appoint someone to replace uh, who's in, you know, to fill that vacancy on the court. Right. Um, so we're going to talk about what the process looks like, and then at the end we'll talk about, like, why is this so controversial. But I think it will be helpful if everyone understands, like, yeah. what does this process look like from start to finish? Sure. And then we'll talk about, like... The controversy. So if you're thinking, like, why are you just skipping past all the controversy? We'll, we'll get we'll hit to it at it. the end. Hold, hold your horses. You're going to have to listen to the whole episode. Yeah. So President Trump um, appointed Judge Amy Coney Barrett um, to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court. He nominated her this past Saturday. Um... And so just a little bit about Judge Barrett. So um, she grew up in Louisiana. She went uh, to Rhodes College. She graduated first in her class from Notre Dame. She clerked for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. Um, Mm -hmm. She has worked at, at, she was in private practice for a little while. She's worked at Notre Dame as a law professor um, for a number of years uh, before she was confirmed to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in 2017. She has seven children. She has seven children. Two of them are adopted. Um, as far as her sort of views, and this kind of goes to controversy later, uh, but she's a devout Catholic, um, and she is also pretty unabashedly an originalist, mm-hmm. uh, which, again, hopefully ring some bells for you going back to our third episode on... How do we interpret the Constitution? Yeah, on the difference between originalism and constitution uh, and uh, living constitutionalism. And so she very firmly, um, interestingly enough, at her... I don't know if it's really... It's not really an acceptance speech. I guess it, it is an accept, acceptance of the president's nomination. Of the nomination, yeah. Um, you know, she said... I can't, I can't remember her exact language. Basically, she said... I think this, I think exactly what she said was... Justice Scalia's judicial philosophy is mine too, Mm. you know? And so Scalia was our like prime example of this is what originalism looks like. And so, you know, she said, I'm in this mold. Right. Well, and I think President Trump addressed that too in his speech with saying like, you know, she's going to interpret the constitution as it was written. Right. um, Which kind of goes to originalism. Originalism versus living constitutionalism. And um, for our listeners, it would be, you know, if you're interested in, like, seeing this process played out, this was, like, the first step in the process. So if you're interested, you could go watch this nomination speech. I think it was maybe it 20 was minutes. Long. Yeah. Um, and just see how this process works from start to finish. Uh, we're at the very early part, so you're not too far behind yet. Okay, so the president nominates someone. What happens next? Um so what's happening right now after nomination is a couple things. And all of these things are matters of, of custom, mm-hmm. right? The Constitution doesn't say you have to do this, but this is just how it works. Right. So the first thing is the nominee does what's called courtesy visits. So they go and visit senators. Um, and basically they're trying to sell themselves as someone that the senator can vote for. Um 
this process has become so much more polarized in the past, I mean, really even 30 years, right? We were just talking about RBG was confirmed 96 to 3 or something like that. Yeah. Um, but so a lot of senators have already said how they're going to vote. Some yeah. senators have said, we're not going to meet with her because, you know, we think this whole process is illegitimate. More we'll on that in a minute. We'll get to that later, yeah. Um, but she'll go around and... and some of these meetings a nominee will go to and they will know, you know, this person's never going to vote for me. Right. Um, so and they'll just get grilled. Sorry, go ahead. Is she tr- like, I imagine she would meet with the people that are kind of in the middle. They meet with everyone to- who's willing to meet with them. Okay. That's why it's called a courtesy visit. I mean, really, they, they try to meet with everyone. But that's like a hundred people. Mm-hmm. Yep. She's so going to meet with a hundred individually? Is a big, I am sure... Not individually. Yeah. Who I, has time for I that? am sure that the Saturday after she was nominated, she probably met with some senators. For how long, though? Well, it just depends. Like so five again, minutes? Again, each? I think this really depends on the senator. But, you know, if you met with every senator for an hour and it was, you know, like an eight to five job, you know, let's say you met with seven senators a day. You know, that takes a while, but you can move through them fairly quickly. And some of them are going to be really fast, right? Like, some people have already said, I'm voting for you. Yeah. You know, your conversation might be like, I think you're well qualified for this job, you right. know, and they'll ask them softball questions. Uh-huh. N- not questions about softball. You no. know, easy questions. Right. Um, I just don't want our listeners to I don't to think anyone was confused. Confused. Um, well, listen, I thought rubber stamping was a very... I understood based on easy... context. I told you. Yeah. I knew um, what it meant. I just don't want to had never anyone. heard that before. So, yeah. So, and, you know, and some people have said they won't meet with them. But this is a process. So you're absolutely right. Like, this takes time. Yeah. Um, and, again, it runs the whole gambit of, like, look at these pictures of my kids. You know, can you sign your autograph? So basically, to, like, an introvert's worst nightmare. To, like, this very, you know, like, tell me what you're going to do, you know, with this case. Like, v- you know, very rigorous drilling, just uh-huh. depending on the senator. Yeah. Uh, but ideally, this is designed to create goodwill. Mm-hmm. You know, even if someone had said they're not going to vote for you, you might make a good personable impression. Like, you might leave the meeting and they might say, you know, I'm not going to vote for them, but... You know, oh, I, I think she's a pretty nice person or whatever. You know, so there's mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes behind these courtesy meetings. Um, the second big thing is hearing preparation. So what we'll get to in a minute is they go through these confirmation hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee. But the nominee has to go through this incredibly rigorous prep process for that. Okay. So the first thing is you're going to be asked questions about anything that's happened in your life before. Right. So the nominee, you know, has to go and review everything she's ever written, every speech she's ever given, you know, anything that might be controversial. Yeah. And they usually have help with this. Like, they'll have staffers that will be going through and, you know, okay, this isn't controversial, this isn't controversial. Mm-hmm. You know, you made this one statement and it makes sense in context, but someone might pull it out on you and say, right. you know, you once said... Um, they're always like great gotcha moments, you know, where someone in a speech says, you know, some people say America is a terrible country, but I say it's the best country in the world. You know, and at a hearing, someone says, I heard you said, you know, America is the worst country in the world. Right. You know, if they know the context of their comments, they're not ruffled by that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so that's part of it, reviewing their own record. Um, if they're a judge, which most people who have been nominated to the Supreme Court are, reviewing the cases that they've their written, decisions. the opinions yeah. that have come out, because they're certainly going to be asked questions about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just having a firm grasp of the law. Like when people think about the Supreme Court, they think about healthcare and abortion and voting rights um, and, you know, sex discrimination. But the Supreme Court hears tons of cases about, you know, arcane areas of criminal law and property rights. Right. The boring stuff. And it hears stuff. cases about Indian rights, you know, stuff that lawyers love and don't think is boring. But you have to know a lot of information yeah. because someone could ask you a question about any of that. Uh-huh. Like, you know, and if, if you say, oh, I have no idea, yeah. that makes you look pretty foolish. Well, that doesn't seem very fair, does it, though? Because, like, you're not going to, like, expect anyone to just have, like, their whole... Know like, everything. Like, the, their whole resources of the profession memorized, right? Yeah. Like, if you ask me, like, well, what's the best practice for teaching um, grammar? I could give you maybe, like, a summary, but I would have to, like, go pull, like, sources and be like, okay, well, this is, like, you know, this person said this and, you know, this is how it's evolved and whatever. And I'd have to, like, look at stuff. Right. <laughs> to, right. like, give well, you a full comprehensive and, answer. And so it might be acceptable, depending on the question, to give a summary. But, you know, you have to at least have something to say. Yeah. You can't be completely flat-footed. Obviously, it's on set. Like, senators might just look like jerks if they're like, what do you think about this opinion from 1842? You know. Right. People would understand the candidate not knowing. Right. You know, or the nominee not knowing that. You know, but if they say, well, you know. What about this case about, you know, the Commerce Clause from the 1990s? Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of information they need to know. Yeah. Um, And in part, what what you're getting at is, well, it seems silly if they can just ask gotcha questions um, where they trick them. But they are also interviewing for, you know, one of the most powerful positions. But the Supreme Court justices don't just, like decide opinions right then and there. Like, they, I'm sure they spend hours right. pouring over, like, documents and going back and looking at different Precedence. cases, you yeah. know? Like, right. it's not like they have that right at the tip of their Right. Tongue. No, you're right. You're right. But this is part of the prep process. So, right. for better or worse, this is what it is. Um, yeah, so their own background there. And then, you know, like, personal questions mm-hmm. that people will be asked, you know, that they have to be able to respond to if there's something they said in the past, if there's... Um, when Barrett was being um, interviewed for a position on the Seventh Circuit, she was asked a lot of questions about how her faith might influence the decisions that, um, that she would come out with. You know, so th- there are those sorts of angles. Which is ridiculous, be right? Because, like... Whose personal opinions aren't going to influence in some way their decisions? Yeah. I like, mean, ideally, you'd be, like, completely neutral, but you're not. I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I'm going to let it go because okay. that's a pretty, that is a pretty hotly debated, like, to what extent. I mean, religion is, there. there's a lot of controversy around that, and I suspect this will come up again this mm-hmm. time around. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what people are concerned about. To, to put the most, like, generous spin on it is, you know, the Catholic Church teaches that the death penalty 
yeah. shouldn't be legal. Right. So are you going to follow what the Catholic Church says and right. say no death penalty? Or are you going to follow what you think the Constitution says? You know, and it's mm-hmm. I don't think it's really that difficult for a judge who's thought about a question like that to answer. I think politi- I, I think attacks on someone's religion are usually don't play very well. Yeah. I think they usually make the questioner look foolish. One part of the Constitution we didn't talk about is the Constitution actually prohibits like a religious test on someone being in office. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can get into problems there too, acting like, you know, your religious beliefs have to be a certain way for you to be in a public office. Right. But, well, um, I just think it's silly to, to, you know, to think like, oh, well, people aren't going to be influenced by the things that have shaped them as people. Like, right. that's your, that's your worldview, right? So it does affect how you view everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. I think... I think when it comes to the Supreme Court, people may agree or disagree with this statement strongly, but I think people, the goal of a, of a justice or any judge is to be impartial. Right. And so to try to minimize those things. And I think it's, it is in a way like an obvious statement that everyone is impacted by their background. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you think, think about the, you know, sex discrimination cases that RBG brought to the Supreme Court, you know, part of it was, I want them, I don't think they're going to be able to understand unless I put it in the context of men. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, there's like some truth to that, but I think people also get really nervous because, you know, it's hard to separate your background from outcomes. Yeah. And that's where judicial philosophy comes into play and, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a big conversation, but, um, yeah. so that's part of what they have to prep for, okay. um, for, all the questions are going to be asked at the hearings. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing going on is the background investigation. Mm. So the FBI conducts a background investigation on the nominee. Usually there's already been an investigation done. Right. You know, when Before they, they are went asked. To the, right. Um, but the FBI releases details to um, usually a, a group of staffers on the Judiciary Committee who then review them further if there are any issues that are flagged. Mm-hmm. And then any issues of note can be brought up in a close... Historically, what's happened is in a closed session at the Judiciary Committee. And this is held for pretty much every nominee. So that way it's not like, oh, they're having a closed session, there must be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, the idea is there might be something that looks like a problem and really isn't. There might be a huge problem like, oh, this person's a felon or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, that may disqualify someone from nomination. So that's that's the third piece that's going on is the background investigation. So then the big day comes for the start of the confirmation hearings. And absent any change, this will start on October 12th with Judge Barrett. Okay. Um, that's what the, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee Lindsey Graham has set us a schedule. Um, so what happens in committee hearings, uh, historically they've lasted four days. Mm-hmm. Um, and these committee hearings didn't start until the 1950s. So there were periods of American history where someone was nominated and they would be confirmed within 24 hours. Like they would okay. just, you know, the president would send the nomination over to the Senate and the Senate would vote on them and then that would be it. Um, Mm -hmm. But it probably makes sense that, you know, people have to be asked some questions before they get there and evaluated and vetted. And so that's what the Judiciary Committee is is supposed to do. 
So the first day of the committee hearings is just opening statements. So Mm -hmm. the senators get to make opening statements, the nominee gets to make opening statements, and everyone just sort of gets to say whatever they want. Every senator can make an opening statement? So I have this in my notes. I should have said this earlier. So there are 22 senators on the Judiciary Committee. Oh. That's a lot, but it's not 100. Who? Okay. So, and, and the reason that there are committees is like, you can't have 100 people. Right. And and we haven't talked about this with, with Congress more largely, but Congress works in a lot of committees. So like, if a piece of legislation is going through, it goes to committee and they work it up into a format that they think is, you know, the whole House or the whole Senate should consider. So, so the ju- Judiciary Committee considers the nominees, uh-huh. they, they debate them, they ask them a lot of questions, so everyone in the Senate has more information about them. Uh-huh. And, and then, it's the same people every time. It doesn't change. Like, the senators who are on the Judiciary Committee stay the same. Well, it can, it can change based on committee assignments, but it doesn't usually change unless there's been like an intervening election or uh-huh. like the number of seats that a political party has on the judiciary committee depends on how many seats they control in the Senate. Okay. Um, or a Senator may leave a committee and go to a different committee, but, but generally it's the same. Um, so there are 22. So the first day is just them making opening statements um, you know, sometimes this can be helpful. A lot of times, in my opinion, it's a lot of grandstanding. You know, like, the what I would expect for the list... Uh, so it's hard to know what to expect. We'll get to the controversy part later. But usually people who support the nominee just talk about what a great person they are, how amazing they are, what a great job they'll do, how confident they are in their success. Yeah, so just And the people who don't like them say they're the worst thing ever, we yeah. hate them, you know, whatever. It's it's kind of awkward to watch, I think, because, like, they're just sitting there, you know, like, looking at each other, talking about how great or terrible the person is. Yeah. But the, a thing to remember is all of these are televised, so you can mm-hmm. watch this. It's interesting to watch. But Get some watch parties going on. The senators are playing to their constituents. Yeah. You know, and especially in an election year, this is a great opportunity to make your case for you know, to right. your constituents as to why this candidate is a good fit or not. Mm-hmm. So then usually days two and three are questions. So mm-hmm. the senators each get an allotted amount of time and they get to ask anything of mm-hmm. the nominee. And a lot of times this functions along partisan lines too. So the people who don't like them will try to ask them the hardest questions they can. They'll try to drill down on really, you know, arcane. Like, their goal is to trip the nominee up, to do something to get them to disqualify themselves. And then usually the um, people from the party supporting the nominee ask them softball questions. Yeah. You know, and... And sometimes this like, might be like... do you have any pets? Well, sometimes it might be like, <laughs> explain your judicial philosophy. And other times it will be like, what are your hobbies? Yeah. Like, I mean, it can be like embarrassingly... Easy questions. Easy questions. Yeah. Um, and it goes back and forth. So it's like majority party, minority party, majority okay. party, minority party. About how long do they each have? Um, you know... It varies. I can't remember if it's like 15 minutes or 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's two days total with 22 yeah. people. So, you know, I'm not, I, it might be like 30 minutes, but I'm not sure. Yeah. It might be less than that. Um, right. 
And so, yeah, so that's, you know, that's an interesting thing to watch. Um, to be candid with you, at most of the confirmation hearings I've, I've watched, I really only watch when the opposing party asks questions uh-huh. because that's when it's interesting. Right. Because a lot of times the other questions are kind of, they're just, they're just kind of boring. Silly. Yeah. You know, like it, it might be like, explain your judicial philosophy and take as long as you want. Uh, uh-huh. But you'll see, like, the senators are fighting the clock when they ask questions. Yeah. Like, if they're trying to make a point, they'll cut the nominee off. Right. You know, they'll... Or the right. nominee will try to run out the clock. Uh-huh. You know, they'll try to take their time and give a lot of make context. Long pauses. <laughs> because this is very perilous for any nominee, too. Because if they see something wrong, if they see something that can be taken out of context, like, that can really hurt them. Yeah. Are they um, allowed to have a cheat sheet? They do have they do have papers, but again, you, it's like you can be asked anything. Yeah. So it's pretty but like tough. you could have the Constitution right there. Yeah, well, I don't know how much that would <laughs> help you, but that would be could you suitable. Have that would be suitable if you had the Constitution. <laughs> could you, you. Like, no, I don't think you. I don't think you have any <laughs> any uh, stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, and so, kind of my kind of part of the point I'm driving home with this is a lot of the. the so there's some benefit to these hearings. I think, you know, people have to be asked the hard questions. They have to go on record. They have to show that they're prepared to do the job. But there's also a lot of political grandstanding. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of it's kind of like a performance that you're watching. Um, but, you know, it can be pretty consequential. A misstep can go, you know, can destroy someone's nomination. A senator asking a stupid question can really embarrass them. Um, mm-hmm. etc. Usually the fourth day, there will be like outside witnesses. So it's like character witnesses come in to say, you know, Judge Barrett is the best judge ever. She'll be a great person on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's usually the fourth day of the confirmation hearings. One thing to watch in particular in these confirmation hearings, again, we'll get to the controversy bit more in a minute, but um, vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris is on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh-huh. And so I'm sure, like, this is a great opportunity for her to make her case to the American people. And so that's interesting. I don't know if there's any precedent for a vice presidential nominee... Being... Being, you know... On the on, on Well, on the committee, like, right before an election. Yeah. You know, where part of... Again, we're kind of getting into the controversy, but that will be an interesting thing to watch because she's on the committee. Mm -hmm. Okay, so after that, after the hearings are done, the Judiciary Committee debates the nominee. There's a provision where business can be held over for a week. So there'll probably probably be like a week waiting period. Um, And then the Judiciary Committee is going to vote on the nominee. Even if the vote is negative to the nominee, usually it's, still sent to the full Senate, just reported disfavorably. Like, they'll say, you know, we voted 9-4-13 against, you know, so we're reporting her unfavorably for a full vote to the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, or it can be, you know, favorable. And so I think what people anticipate right now is that it will be, you know, 12-10, mm-hmm. a 12-10 vote, which would be strictly along party lines. Mm-hmm. Then the Senate votes... All that is required at this point in time for someone to be confirmed as a justice to the Supreme Court is a majority vote. Right. And because the vice president, you know, because President Trump nominated Judge Barrett, 
uh, all they need is 50 senators because Vice President Pence um, could break the tie in the case of a 50-50 tie. And an interesting piece of, of historical knowledge is it used to be that they needed 60 votes yeah. to confirm someone, but this changed back. It's been less than 10 years. It changed for nominees to federal district courts and court of appeals. It changed to being a simple majority vote because at that point it was uh, Democrat Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid felt like they just weren't able to get enough nominees yeah. through. And so they lowered the requirement. They changed the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2017, with the nomination of Justice Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, uh, the the Republicans changed the vote threshold for a candidate to um, 50 votes for a Supreme Court justice. So it just requires a simple majority vote. Mm. So that will be a big thing to watch. There will be a lot in the news about, especially about Republican senators who are up for re-election. How are they going to vote? Uh, there would be a big sort of vote watching thing because the, you know, assuming she makes it through the entire committee process and everything, the end, the end of this is that, you know, she needs at least 50 votes on the floor. Right. So that's an overview of the process. And then if she's confirmed, she would be sworn in and would be on the Supreme Court. Okay. So getting into the controversy stuff, first of all, there has been like, this all started with like, well... Should we even nominate someone because the election is happening so soon? And in the past with the um, Democratic nominee, I don't remember who it was, mm-hmm. they they were like, no, because, you know, we, it should really go to the next president, mm-hmm. whoever is the, the next president. Um, so I know that's been, like, controversial. Yeah. So I think kind of, like, splitting those apart a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, so I think... The first big controversial thing is just the timing. Yeah. Like, the fact that we are... I mean, I think as of today, it's we're a little over a month from the presidential election. So, that just the fact that this vacancy has occurred so close to a president, um, a presidential election, is a big deal. Because one of the presidents, you know... I don't want to say it's one of his biggest powers, but a big power the president has is nominating justices to the Supreme Court. And so there's just like a practical concern that, you know, well, if the president's voted out, why should he get to pick mm-hmm. a justice if he's going to be voted out of office, you know, in 30 days? I think, you know, constitutionally, I don't think the constitution bears on this issue at all. Mm -hmm. Like there's no timing requirement on when a president can pick someone. So it's just important to realize like what we're talking about is a matter of practice. Right. I think the data set, we'll talk more about precedent and the, the, the Garland nomination, which hangs over this really heavily in a second. But one difficult thing is I think Supreme court nominee precedent is super manipulable. Like, I feel like I could make a good case for either party in either direction based off of historical precedent. Mm -hmm. It just depends on how wide of a net you're casting. So, you know, one consideration is there have been less than 120 justices on the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. in our nation's history. So of that, only a very small subset have been confirmed close to an election or even in a presidential election year. You know, so there's inevitably some, some cherry picking of data. 
if you're trying to figure out, you know, if you're trying to say, well, we always do it this yeah, way. Yeah, there's not that much to go off of. Right. And so you can point to stuff that favors you, you know, like, and how wide do you, do you say a nominee, you know, a vacancy that occurred, you know, 50 days before right. the election, a hundred, a yeah. year before, like the timing really matters right. in this argument is what I'm trying to get at. You know, there are other factors like, is the president of the same party as the Senate? So are they likely to get their, their nominee confirmed? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, another big concern is how far back are we going in history? Like the norms that we've had in the confirmation process have changed in the past 20 years and they've changed in the past 50 years and they've changed in the past hundred years, you know? And so however wide you, mm-hmm. you cast this perspective is going to really shape your answer. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I just think you can find good arguments about timing with the support of precedent one way or the other, just depending on who's writing them and and sort of what criteria Mm -hmm. they're using. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, the big controversy here is precedent. So by way of background, in 2016, um, I believe it was February of 2016, Justice Scalia died. And... At that time, President Obama was president. It was, you know, still early. The presidential primaries were going on. It was February, so it was almost a year till a new president was going to be sworn in on January 20th. And President Obama said, you know, I'm going to nominate someone to the Senate. And so Senate Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, we are not going to vote on your nominee. So the nominee was Merrick Garland. He was a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Republicans refused to meet with him for that entire year. Mm -hmm. And obviously, President Trump ended up being elected. Mm -hmm. um, And Neil Gorsuch, who was his nominee, ended up going on the Supreme Court. And so the Democrats have said, well, this seems incredibly hypocritical, right? What happened in 2016 was the president followed his constitutional duty to nominate someone Mm -hmm. and the Senate refused to entertain the nomination, you know, because it was an election year, because they said, well, the next president should get to decide who gets to sit in this seat. So it's entirely hypocritical now to say, well, the current president should get to decide. Right. You know, so the, the Democratic argument is, shouldn't we wait? Like, that's what you did in 2016. Right. That's what we should do. When it was like in February, so early before right. the the vote even. Right. Um, we had plenty of time. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's, you know, that's the argument. Now, the counter argument by Majority Leader McConnell is, well, it's actually a different situation. And so McConnell's argument is... In 2016, the Senate was controlled by Republicans and the president was a Democrat. So they were of different political parties, you know, and so it's hard to confirm someone like a president is going to have to nominate someone maybe who isn't his first pick because they're a more moderate pick that a Senate of the opposing party will get behind. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, the president is a Republican and the Senate is controlled by the Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so the majority leader's argument is the situation is different because the American people gave the Republican party, both the Senate and the presidency 
with the presumption that we would fill a seat, as opposed to 2016, where the American people gave the Senate to the Republicans and the pre- and the presidency to a Democrat, you know, and so it made sense to wait then, and it doesn't make sense to wait now. But if you, uh, yeah, I mean, but if you wait then, like, who's to say that a Republican is going to be nominated as the next president? Elected. Yeah, elected, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, they, it could very well have been, okay, we're going to wait in 2016, and then um, a Democrat is not is elected right. as president, and the Senate is still Republican. So then what? You just don't nominate anyone right. to fill that seat? Right. No. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great pushback. It, you know, and that's a scenario we haven't seen yet, right? Like, what's going to happen in the future when we have a divided Senate and president, are we just not going to see anyone confirm? And so that's a a serious criticism. Mm -hmm. I think my biggest takeaway from this is political parties are politically motivated. So whether, you know, I think, you know, I've seen people embrace McConnell's rationale. I've seen people embrace the Democrats rationale. I think the thing that I am the most firmly convinced of is either political party would try to fill the seat if they were in this position. Mm-hmm. Because part of how politics works, for better or worse, and, you know, frankly, I'd argue probably for worse, is that if you have power, you use it or you lose it. Yeah. And so... um you know, so I, I think there's a good argument that the Republicans' position here is hypocritical. I think there's a good argument by the Republicans that the Democrats would do the same thing if they were in this position. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in either event, you know, it's it's a nasty thing for American political life because it's, it's just going to be inherently divisive. So like mm-hmm. I was talking about earlier, you know, there are senators who have said, well, we're not going to meet with the nominee. Right. Um you know, if she's confirmed, that process will be illegitimate. Um, you know, I think I think the argument for saying that she would be illegitimate is that the Republicans used illegitimate political means to get her into office. I mean, I don't think I would be interested to hear the argument. I, I don't really think there's a good argument that there's anything constitutionally illegitimate. But it may be, you know, politically ill-advised. Yeah. Um, It may be hypocritical um, or inconsistent. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But that's that's a general overview. The other reason that this is so controversial is it's a balance of power issue. And this is the last point. So currently, the public perception of the Supreme Court is that they're, you know, up until RBG's death, there were four liberal justices. Mm Mm-hmm. There were at least four conservative justices. Chief Justice Roberts, you know, I think is widely considered, I think he is more conservative than liberal, mm-hmm. but he's an institutionalist. And so sometimes he's willing to compromise. Um, and so I think the Republicans are very motivated because this is an opportunity to get a very strong conservative court. Right. I think the Democrats, on the other hand, are very highly motivated because they could lose, you know, not only are they losing RBG's seat on the court, Mm -hmm. they're losing any hope at moving the court further to the left for the near future. Mm -hmm. So there are huge power issues undergirding this. And this is another thing I think that's important to 
you know, if you're listening to the explanations that both parties are putting out, I don't want to be too cynical, but I do think at the end of the day, both parties are thinking about power. Mm-hmm. You know, they're thinking about who controls the Supreme Court. Right. And yeah. they're willing to, you know, to do things to take inconsistent positions. Um, yeah. You know, to... to if it benefits be, their party. Right, to benefit their party. Yeah. Um, and so it will be interesting to see how this plays out. There's been mm-hmm. discussion by at least some Democrats of, if this nominee is confirmed, of expanding the size of the Supreme Court... Mm-hmm. Um, should they come into power? You know, the argument would be, well, if you have the, you know, if all politics is, is if you have power, use it or lose it, then we may as well use the power to expand the Supreme Court. You know, it's mm-hmm. not unconstitutional. Um, so I think this is something that should concern Americans. I don't know that there is like an easy answer um, right. to what should happen. I think the timing of this creates an incredibly explosive scenario. Yeah. Uh, but this will be something to watch over the next couple of weeks to see how the confirmation process unfolds, how the election unfolds, yeah. um, and ultimately what the future of the Supreme Court is. I mean, ideally, you would think that everyone would want to have a balance, right? Like, that's kind of what our country was founded on, was, like, having a balance of powers so that no one party or no one branch of government is overpowering the other, right? Well, I think there's a difference between no branch of government overpowering the others and no political party. Mm -hmm. Like, the branches each have distinct roles, but there have been periods in our nation's history where, like, the Federalists, Mm -hmm. who were the party of Washington and Adams, got completely swept out of power Mm -hmm. um, by Thomas Jefferson And for, like, 20 years, the Democratic-Republican Party, you know, whose founder was Jefferson, were just had a vice grip on politics. Yeah. Um, And so I wouldn't say it hasn't happened before. And and I think think most political parties think, you know, aren't thinking, I want things to be balanced. I think they're thinking, I want to have power. Right. You know. Um, And ultimately, I want to have power because, you know, people agree with me and I'm affecting the will of the people. Right. But if you're looking at it from kind of like an overview. Yeah. Like a stability perspective. Like Uh, you're thinking, how does... Well, and kind of like a, you know, if you think about America and the people that make up the United States, there aren't... I don't know if the if the population is like fifty fifty, Democratic Republican, but if that were the case, like you'd want to give representation to to both people, right? Like, yeah, but I I I understand what you're saying. Like, just two comments. Yeah. One is, I do think it is a it is a oversimplification to like describe a justice as Republican or Democrat. Yeah. Based off which president appointed sure. them. And and I think that's super common. I think we do it all the time. Mm-hmm. But like people do not no one fits into a box. Right. Like you cannot predict it's how someone's gonna vote all But it's certainly true that, you know, like there is there is some correlation. Mm-hmm. Um but I think the second thing is that maybe certain branches of our government are designed to represent the people right Mm -hmm. like that's what congress is designed to do yeah um and you know in a way the president right like 
what the majority of people through the Electoral College, let's not get into that debate right now, <laughs> decide, you know, is the president. Mm-hmm. But the Supreme Court is is not that way. Like, in many ways, it's it's really up to luck yeah. how many people are nominated by each president. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are good arguments, and maybe we'll talk about this in the future, about ways you might be able to change the Supreme Court to alter that. Mm-hmm. But that was a deliberate design choice by mm. the framers to say, this branch actually isn't representative of the people. And I think part of that is, is you know, they're not politically accountable to the people. Right. Um, and so the idea is, you know, I think that they're going to be putting the law ahead of sort of what just what people want at that point in time. But I understand yeah. what you're saying. But I just go- think, like, it, it's interesting that it's not structured to work that way. It could be, yeah. but it's not. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's that's an overview of what the confirmation process looks like, some of the hurdles that are facing. This will be something to watch over the coming weeks. This will be pretty divisive, I imagine, already has been and will be even more so as it comes forward. The anticipation is that a vote will happen on this nominee less than a week before the election. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's certainly unprecedented that um, someone will be confirmed that close to the election. So it'll be interesting to see what, if any, effect that has on that contest as well. All right. So that is it for this episode. And next time we'll be doing our Q&A. So hope you guys can join us for that.